Good evening, everyone. Sorry for the delay. It's just that this is such a popular event. The uh, auditorium above us is still filling with people. <laughs> My name is Paul Pepys. I'm the director of the Oregon Humanities Center, and I want to welcome you tonight to this, the third lecture in the Oregon Humanities Center's Eugene Public Lecture Series on uh, this year's theme, We the People. At a time of deep division, disagreement, and unrest across our nation and the globe, a time when we are confronted with a host of urgent and unprecedented challenges, social and political, spiritual and ecological, we selected a theme that would invite our lecturers to reflect from their various perspectives on the capacious and inclusive phrase, we the people. But before we hear from our speaker tonight, Robin Wall Kimmerer, on our theme, I have a couple of brief announcements as always. You saw as you came in our information table in the lobby where you can find out about OHC events and programs and sign up for our mailing list. Uh, Robin Kimmerer has generously agreed to answer questions and sign books following the talk. For the Q&A, please come to the microphones at the, uh, at the ends of the aisles and to speak into those microphones so that everyone can hear you. Since we're doing a simulcast upstairs, it's important to speak into the mic so they can hear you. And also to uh, maximize audience opportunities to ask questions, please keep your questions as concise as you can. Finally, I need to give my usual thanks. First, many thanks to our collaborators in EMU Event Services and the Center for Media and Educational Technologies for their logistical and technical support. Special thanks, as always, to the OHC's incredible staff, Julia Hayden, Melissa Gustafson, Peg Gearhart, Gina Turner, and Greta Blankenship. Last but not least, thanks to our generous donors and patrons for their support. If you want to join them in supporting cutting-edge research in the humanities and timely public programs like this one, please pick up a donation envelope on your way out. Without the support of our terrific staff, collaborators, and patrons, the OHC wouldn't be able to organize public humanities events and host world-class scholars, thinkers, and public intellectuals like our speaker tonight, plant ecologist and writer Robin Wall Kimmerer. Kimmerer will present this year's Robert D. Clark Lecture in the Humanities. The Clark Lecture was established in 1994 and has been sustained since then through the generosity of the Oregon Community Foundation. We are grateful for the foundation's steadfast support of the humanities and the Oregon Humanities Center. The Clark Lecture aims to promote public discussion on the natural sciences, the history of Oregon, and the interface between science and social and cultural affairs, as exemplified by Thomas Condon, frontier missionary, geologist, paleontologist, and, and founding member of the University of Oregon. The lectureship was named for former UO president, Robert D. Clark, author of The Odyssey of Thomas Condon. The Clark lectureship's emphasis on the interface between science and social and cultural affairs, as well as our theme of We the People, help explain why we've chosen Robin Wall Kimmerer as this year's Clark lecturer. Kimmerer is a distinguished teaching professor of environmental biology at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York, and the founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. In addition, Kimmerer is the author of numerous literary essays and two books, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants, and Gathering Moss, 
both of which will be on sale at the end of the lecture. Of European and Anishinaabe ancestry, Kimura is an enrolled member of the citizen uh, Potawatomi Nation. Given Robin Wall Kimura's unique perspective and special gifts, there's no doubt that her Clark Lecture tonight, We the People, Expanding the Circle of Citizenship, will challenge and enlighten us, expanding our understandings of ourselves and our place in the natural world. Please join me in welcoming Robin Wall Kimura. Thank you. Bonjour. Shabadaske gishko kwe na dejnakas. Bodwe wadmi kwe nda. Megazedo dem, minwa makodo dem. I'm so grateful to be here with you and to share a few words in our language. I've given you a traditional protocol greeting to say that my name, my real name is Shabadaske Gish Kokwe, the light shining through Sky Woman. Um, I'm a member of the Bear Clan and of the Eagles of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. And um, our language is an endangered species on the recovery. And so we are encouraged to share those words um, wherever we go. It's also our way to always begin with gratitude. So let me say how grateful I am to be here um, for the wonderful invitation to come back to Oregon, I play, a place I always love to come visit, and to all of you for being here and for the Humanities Center for this wonderful gathering. I also would ask that we all remember this morning when we arose and put our feet on Mother Earth and that she was here to support us that we had everything that we needed. We had water to drink and sweet air to breathe, the companionship of oak trees and, and geese overhead, the companionship of, of one another, and gratitude especially for the privilege of being here in the ancestral Kalapuya uh, homelands. Oops, I'm supposed to be moving. Slides. <laughs> You're so beautiful, I just wanted to look at you, not at the slides. <laughs> I think that, I hope that you'll see this evening that the, the greeting in, in my language, we're gonna talk a fair bit about language tonight and the, and the power of words. I also want you to know that I come to you from Syracuse, New York, um, where there is still two feet of snow on the ground, so I'm especially glad to be here. I come from the heart of what I think of as Maple Nation, where even at this moment, if you just listen hard enough, you can hear the sap plinking into the buckets. And we give great gratitude to those relatives, our, our sugar maples, who we say are the ones who come at the hungry time to save the people every single year. Those maples come and, and faithfully take care of the people in this, this, this time of, of year. And you know these trees that provide us with syrup, with sugar, with firewood, with camaraderie around that fire, they warm our houses in the winter, they sequester our carbon. And my sense of identity is very closely tied to that of, of being a member of Maple Nation. 
I am a citizen of Maple Nation. And yet while all of us can claim with we the people the rights of citizenship, my Maple neighbors themselves have no such rights as, as citizens. Which brings me to our topic tonight. We the people and thinking about expanding the circle of citizenship. And I found this theme to be really significant in the moment, of course, that we find ourselves, to paraphrase the opening remarks, in this time of great division and polarity. There are these conflicting impulses, right? To stay in your corner and, and defend it, but at the same time to know that we need to find common ground. And what better common ground than the ground, than the ground itself? The very land on which we stand is our foundation and can be a source of common cause and, and, and shared identity. Because rivers don't ask for party affili affiliation before giving you a drink, and berries don't withhold their gifts from anyone. And tonight, I hope, will be an exploration of this theme of what does it mean we the people through a number of different lenses that we'll explore briefly each one of them tonight. Um, lenses that you might not find represented in the Constitution. Yet. <laughs> so let's start with that first word, with the we. <laughs> Perhaps some of you are old enough, I see that you are. <laughs> to remember the comic books and eventually the TV series of The Lone Ranger, which despite its egregious stereotypes is a program that I loved as a kid um, in the wasteland of TV, the only native presence there. And uh, I felt some kinship to Tonto. Um, and there's the old joke that you already know because you laughed at the, at the meme um, that the Lone Ranger and Tonto are riding through the plains and become threatened by uh, uh, the surrounding people, in, uh, surrounding Indians in, in battle dress coming toward them. And the Lone Ranger says, looks like we're in trouble, Tonto. And of course, uh, Tonto says, what you mean we, uh, Kimosabe? <laughs> And it's not surprising at all and really relevant to our discussion tonight that Tonto should have to ask this question to clarify what do we mean we. Because according to the history of the Lone Ranger that I was able to dig up, Tonto was a Potawatomi. <laughs> Somehow transported to the Southwest. Um, <laughs> either by the marvel of television or the horror of the Removal Act. And that name, Kimosabe, has been debated, what it really means, but there are some scholars who say it actually comes from the Potawatomi language, and it means to look out from a secret place, as a scout might do. And the question raised by Tonto is this very question that structures our, our thinking together tonight, of what do we mean by we? And interestingly, again, because um, Tonto was apparently a Potawatomi, um, in the Potawatomi language, there is no ambiguity of what we mean by we. We have two forms of the word we, of the, of the conjugation of we. The inclusive we, meaning we all, we all including you. And then there's another way to speak, which says is the exclusive we. When we mean we, 
but not you, not the listener. Um, you are not, in, in, in this case, included in what is to, to follow. Whereas in English, of course, we'd, we do have some ambiguity about what do we mean by we. So let's look at these next words. Um, did I skip my slide? I guess I did. Um, to, to, here's an example of we, the verb to take care of, to watch over the water. My friend Lindsay Moran, where are you, Lindsay? Are you here? There, thank you. Um, a, a Potawatomi linguist and, and scholar who lives here in Eugene um, actually helped to find these words of, of what the verb to look after, to, to watch after. And we can say we take care of the water in the form that we all take care of the water. Or we can say, Nadeke Wabdaman Imbish, we, but not you, take care of the water. So what do we mean by, by this we? Which people are included in this we? Everybody? Or are some voices excluded? And of course, you already know the answer to that question. And I'm not going to tell you anything tonight here that you don't already know. But what we're told is that our job as human people who forget is that we need to remember to remember. So if we continue, we, the people, the people, when we look at the names that many native peoples have for themselves, Dene, Nde, Salagi, Lenape, Wintu, they all translate to mean the people, right? Internal names as the people. Sometimes our people have names that are modified, the people of the swampy place, the people of that western mountain, the people of that river. Because in indigenous cultures, our identity, the identity of many nations is derived from the land. We're citizens of our home landscape in a deep way because we arose in, in those places. And I think it's safe to say that for the most part, Native peoples have a level of inseparability from our homelands as a source of identity, physical as well as spiritual being, that is often not understood, deeply understood. And how could it be in a nation of immigrants um, for whom that sense of identity is transportable to an, a new place? But through the indigenous lens, it actually makes no sense, not to me anyway, to talk about we the people, because we could almost translate that into we the land. We the people and we the land being the same. And let me show you what I, I mean by that. If we think about what does land mean through some of the very standard definitions of the significance of that word land, what I've put forth up here are some of the common definitions of what land means, right? It's the source of our provisioning, ecosystem services, natural resources. It is certainly understood as capital because land is property. Land is understood as, as property. Property law is a bundle of rights. It's rights to land, which include the rights to exclude others, the right to enjoy that land, the right to dispose of that land as the owner sees fit. But if we look through another lens, 
of what does land mean, not as property or as capital. If we look at the indigenous lens of thinking about land as identity, land certainly as our sustainer, equivalent in a sense to what my natural resource colleagues call ecosystem services. Land as home, as residence, but the residence of our more than human relatives as well as our own residence. Land as the ancestral connection land in which our ancestors walked and, and lived and their spirits remain. Um, land as a source of knowledge. Land as literally the library from which we read. Land as our pharmacy. Land as inspirited. Land as home. Land not as a bundle of rights, but land as responsibility. Land is the place where we enact our moral responsibility to all that lives and therefore land is sacred. So this notion of we the people is a much bigger circle of citizenship than we the human people, isn't it? Because of these meanings of, of land. And so with awareness of these two different lenses of what land means, the idea of we the land, the closest equivalent I can think of of we the land in federal policy is certainly public land. Public land is arguably we the land. Um, being mindful, of course, that on this map, which is the best one I could find, only shows federal land, and there's a lot of public land that is state land as well, particularly um, in the east, of course. Um, and I think out here in, in Oregon, you know very well what is under that umbrella of, of, of public lands, from national parks to wilderness areas to BLM lands to wild and scenic rivers and most significantly, perhaps, this evening, to, um, national monuments. But as we look at that map of public lands, it's important that we take a moment to think about those public lands and how they became public lands. When we look at the history of Turtle Island, of North America, where did our public lands come from? They came from our ancestors, from my ancestors, some through treaty making, some through treaty breaking, through illegal sale, through what were known as just wars, through executive action, and some through what is known as encroachment. And we could, of course, use an example from here in Oregon, as we could choose virtually any place on the continent. When we think about the Klamath homelands, for example, um, which were reduced to, their, um, to the size that you see here on the map through treaty, through land sessions, and then ultimately, of course, in 1954, when that greatly reduced Klamath homeland became public land the Klamath homeland became the Winema National Forest through the acts of termination. And it's really important that we acknowledge this loss of land, that we look again at this heartbreak of what happened to our lands to remember and to perhaps reframe our understanding of public lands, that public lands Every square mile of public lands are ancestral lands. 
and to consider what that means. What are our responsibilities? How do we behave differently if we understand them as uh, ancestral lands, that, that you're living in, in someone else's home? And we shy away from remembering this when we, when we use the language of public lands because it's a painful truth. But we have to name that wound in order to heal that wound. In order to get to reconciliation, we have first to get to the truth and then decide together how do we go forward into a shared future that honors that truth? How do we engage with our public lands perhaps differently? Because of course this taking of ancestral lands for public good is not simply something that happened in the long ago past, is it? It's not something that we just sweep under the rug. Do native nations today have full sovereignty over the disposition? Do they have full rights over the disposition of our lands? Are native nations included fully in we the people? Tribal people continue to be disenfranchised in their own ancestral lands, and we need not look no further than Standing Rock, right? Um, where, of course, the NEPA laws that were meant to protect we, the people, the environmental impact statement for the um, pipeline crossing on the Missouri River, judged that the risk of putting an oil pipeline under the drinking water supply for the good people of Bismarck was too risky. But it was an acceptable risk for the people of Standing Rock who call that water sacred. Why were they unable to protect the water? There's a lot of different aspects to this, but the one I want to focus on tonight is because that particular place was deemed not their property not their land. And in the Western definition of land that we just looked at, that's true. But in the native view of those land parcels, which were burial sites, sacred sites, medicine gathering sites, were somehow not within that bundle of property rights because this is land for which people exercised a responsibility, not that they had property rights to it. And in this case, of course, the Army Corps of Engineers made the decision for we, the people, on what would, would happen there on so-called um, public land. And we know on these uh, ancestral homelands of the Lakota people that they were assaulted and jailed for trying to protect their ancestral rights, for daring to assert that they too are part of we, the people. The government, however, of for the people, by the people, decided otherwise. And I will remember always that incredible joy when the decision was made to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. I could hardly believe it, that justice would at last be extended to, to Native people, to the idea that land is more than property. And of course, I will also recall the bitterness when that was undone by our real estate developer in chief. Um, when, we, 
when it was deemed that another person's rights superseded the rights of the Dakota to clean water and their rights or responsibilities to their ancestral lands. And that person, of course, is energy transfer partners in a, in a corporation. And out of that both joy and bitterness surrounding this, a movement was born, awakening to a different conception of what land means and what public land means and as of who is included in we the people. And it's important to say, we all take care of the water, or is it that we, but not you, take care of the water. For me, the designation of the Bears Ears National Monument by the Obama administration seems in a way it felt like a bit of a balm on the wounds after Standing Rock. Because for five decades, for five decades, four decades, the five tribes had worked together to propose, design, and persuade the federal government for the protection of the cultural landscape of indigenous nations, sacred to all five tribes, the source of their subsistence, rich in antiquities and ancestors. It checked every box on what does land mean all of these boxes and was, of course, was to be managed using a combination of scientific tools as well as traditional ecological knowledge and wisdom. But we know also that that historic act of truth and reconciliation, that historic act of healing represented in designation of the first um, sacred landscape to be protected in this way was undone by a stroke of the pen which reduced the bear's ears to um, by 85% with the reasoning that this land was to be returned to we the people. And again, we have to ask to what people whose voice counts in public land decision making and the answer is heard over and over again not the ancestral people and certainly not the voice of the land herself but other people did again get a, a big say in the beautiful bear, bear's ears landscape and we now know that those boundaries were redrawn both for fossil fuel leasing and at the behest of a uranium mining corporation and as we say, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Is this what we the people really mean? And so if we reflect for a moment on this notion that public lands are ancestral lands, the bears are so poignant in that thinking. Not only the ancestral lands of the five tribes, there is another very inclusive we meaning to this notion of ancestral lands that I want to um, entertain this evening. Not only that they are the lands ancestral to the original peoples of this place, but by virtue of history and time, the newcomers have become the ancestors of these lands as well. These are the lands of native and settler alike. We have to use the inclusive we for, for these lands. We have all become those ancestors. And so really our question about public lands is what kind of ancestors do we want to be? So let's continue with this theme of deciding who are we the 
people in the framework of, of public lands. And of course, it's essential to remember that we the people are all of us in this room, right? That we the people, we the people have a voice and have to use it in all of the many avenues that are available to us, right? In, in participation, in comments, in public hearings, influence with elective rep elected representatives, um, voting advocacy, activism, etc. We have to use our outrage and our love on behalf of the lands for which we are now the ancestors. And so for the last look in a way that we'll have at this question of who is we the people, I ask you in this next photograph to look carefully for a moment if you would just identify the people that you, that you see here. Thank you for nodding your heads with love. Um, the people who are here are the goldenrod people, are the asters people. What about those, those monarchs? This is my favorite combination of beings in the world, the goldenrod and, and the asters, that purple and that flaming gold, so, so beautiful, have really colored my relationship with the living world. And um, I grew up among them, grew up on the land in a home that had Potawatomi values, but not a lot of intact Potawatomi cultural practices except that I was raised to understand that they are the people, that they are our, our relatives as, as well. And so it was with um, great surprise um, that that view was challenged for me because I had understood the living world through the indigenous paradigm that really says that nature is subject, that it's a community of, of persons who are around us. And, and I certainly knew them as my companions, as, as my teachers um, on, on the landscape. And then I went away to school to study botany and to study plant science. Um, and boy, was I surprised when I found out that this is what an ecosystem was. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I had very quickly moved from this worldview of a personified nature filled with beings, with teachers, with, uh, with persons. Um, nature as subject into a realm where nature is objectified, nature is object, they're ecosystem um, entities, right? Um, and I like to tell my students, and well, I don't like to tell them, they like to hear, that, that the first year of college was really, really difficult for me because of this worldview shift and having to think about the, the beings that I loved and cherished as my companions as things, as, as, as stuff, as natural resources, if you will, which is why I look so happy in my freshman photo. <laughs> <laughs> Not a mugshot. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> um, a very difficult 
transition to begin to be, in a way, forced into thinking about nature as, as object. And this debate of nature as subject versus nature as object is an ancient one, isn't it? Um, it uh, what I was experiencing as a young college student, this abrupt transition was, in fact, a debate that had been going on um, since uh, the beginning of Western civilization, when we always start with Aristotle. Um, and of course, in the, his scale master work is the Scala Natura, where he put together nature as a hierarchy, right? Um, and this perception that has covered, has colored the development of science and certainly has influences and influenced by um, uh, uh, religious traditions as well to think about, of course, plants at the bottom of that hierarchy and humans at the top just below the angels. And this is some of our root of what we know as a pervasive attribute of Western society, this practice of thinking about West, of human exceptionalism, right? Yeah, wow. Yes, I see you taking a careful look at this, right? <laughs> The very notion of a hierarchy of beings, and look at the poor plants down there in that, that, that corner. Um, so name the person here, you know, there's really only one, right? The notion of human exceptionalism that we are, as a species, different, distinct, when we know that biology tells us we are more alike than we are ever different in biologically, and yet we have this construction of ourselves, thinking of ourselves as somehow the masters of, of the universe. And so what does it then in a world view where human exceptionalism is, is the rule, what does that really mean to be a person? What does that mean in the indigenous worldview? And I don't mean this kind of person. Um, I don't mean a, a fictional person. And, and I'm not talking about anthropomorphism either. Um, no. Um, it's interesting, all you have to do is put a little smile on them and they become humans, right? Anthropomorphism at its best, or at its, as, at its worst, we're not talking about that. We're talking about beings who have their own way to be, that they're not little people with smiling faces. They are their own sovereign beings. These are beings with their own purposes, their own gifts, their own responsibilities, their own creation stories, their own songs, their own reasons for being. And in our Anishinaabe view, we view them not only as beings, as persons, but in fact, as our revered teachers. Plants understood as our teachers because they embody creativity, they embody generosity, and they have this amazing ability to take that which is not alive, light, and air, and water, and turn it into food for everyone. They are revered as, as our, our teachers. But you know, as a plant scientist, when I write about the plants, I have to write about them as if I learned about plants. Not that I learned from plants. Um, and this way of being that in writing, particularly in the scientific worldview, um, which is mirrored in so many other ways that we think and, and, and talk, that I have to refer to them as if they were object. 
And this object thinking provides us with a powerful example of linguistic imperialism, which we know is to be the renaming of places by settler um, colonists, right? Um, say, well, no, this is ours now, and we are going to call it what it is in, through our lens on the world. Place names, for example, I'm guessing Eugene was not always called Eugene. Um, <laughs> You thought land was this, and so we're going to name it something different. We're going to redefine it as, as, as that. And this tool of colonization is nowhere more pernicious, I think I want to say, than in this little word right here, of it. All of those persons for whom we give gratitude all of those beings with whom our lives are inextricably linked. In the English language, we must refer to as it, right? Every one of them. Um, we, we say of, 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 the, of the tree, and we say it of the, of the, of the elk, um, oh, look at it, right? And in our own language, would I ever say, oh, look at it, it's sitting in the front row. Um, your grandma's in the kitchen and you say, oh look, it's wearing an apron. Um, <laughs> right, you know, you're, we laugh, but it's, but it's an uncomfortable laugh, right? Because it's so rude. I stole her personhood. I disrespected her by calling her it. Because if you think about it in the English language, human exceptionalism, you are either a human or you are an it, right? Our language really holds this, this, this teaching and this notion of itting the rest of the world is completely consistent with that view of land as property, as capital, isn't it? And itting of the natural world somehow gives us permission to turn a sacred living landscape into natural resources. Our language gives us that permission and this consequences of, of objectifying other beings really is, is, a, is a circle of moral exclusion. When we think about the inclusive we and the exclusive we, when we say it, we don't mean we're all in the same circle, do we? We mean that you're outside of it and you're outside our circle of ethical responsibility. But in the Potawatomi language, of which I am just a beginning student, that's not possible. It's not possible to refer to any of these people as it. We speak a grammar which is based on the grammar of animacy, not dividing the world into masculine and feminine grammars, but into animate and inanimate grammars. We have a different grammar for speaking of that who is alive and that which is not alive. There's a different verb for hearing a blue jay than for hearing an airplane go by, so that we constantly give respect to, to the living world as, as subject. It's not possible to speak of them as, as it. We speak of them with the same grammar that we use for our family, because they are our family. And so I would like to, in the enlightened audience of in Eugene, make a modest proposal to, to transform the English language um, and 
Yeah? Let's try. Let's do this. Um, and it's strange to think, perhaps, that the, the, the path to um, the, the green sustainable path might be paved with grammar. <laughs> Uh, hard, hard to imagine, um, but we need a new pronoun. We need a way to speak of the world um, with respect, with the personhood of, of all of these beings. And for a long time now, I've been thinking about this. Mostly I've been listening in the natural world to listen. What, what, what is the right sound? And also working with a um, beloved elder, um, asking him, uh, Stuart King, about um, his thoughts on how in our language would we say uh, a living being. And he said that probably the closest that he could um, formulate this, because it's built into the language, it's not like you even need a separate word for it because it's just inherent in the language, is this word bimadizi aki. Um, such a beautiful word, and I was delighted to know that it exists, but I couldn't see Bamadezi Aki finding its way easily into the language, to, or into English, to replace um, uh, it. And, but again, listening and thinking and consulting in that word that you see there, Bamadezi Aki, an earth being, the last word, Aki, means the earth. And what about that last little sound? What about ki? Could we use that instead of he, she, and certainly of it to say ki? Um, ki is eating berries. Um, ki is, is in the woods. Uh, ki, that maple tree, is, is bringing us these gifts this, this spring. And of course, if we were to do that, we would also need a plural form, right? Um, and with full acknowledgement of the inspiration of the Potawatomi language for this thinking about animating English, might we also think about, in English, do we have a word already that might fit the bill? And I think that we do. We just add an N to pluralize that word so that every time we speak of the living world, we speak of the living world as our relatives, that when those geese come back, we say, kin are flying home. Um, we're so glad you're back. It's transformative if we think about speaking of the world as if it was made of persons and, and made, in fact, of our, our relatives. And then we truly are speaking the inclusive we, um, where we are all in this, not a hierarchy, with humans being the masters of the universe um, and everybody else being the lesser other, but in fact recognizing our rightful place as one member of the democracy of all species. And these ideas of the personhood of living beings and the living world as community and of, as relatives and, and family is an idea which is anchored in indigenous cultures all over the world, including the indigenous cultures from which your ancestors came. And it is also present in the Western tradition of conservation. 
if we look at the words from Aldo Leopold around the land ethic, to think of expanding how we understand community as full of persons, neighbors, relatives um, that include the land. And so with those different lenses in place, let's look at bear's ears again. What if the bear's ears belong to themselves? What if they were not the property of a single species? What if they belonged to themselves? Or what if the Missouri River had the inherent right not to be contaminated with oil? Or the Bristol Bay salmon had a right to their own homelands, their ancient spawning grounds? What if my sugar maples at home had rights guaranteed to exist and not become climate refugees as their homelands are shrinking due to climate change? What about rights for the personhood of all beings? In order to go there, I think we also have to think about another meaning for what does it mean to be a person. And as we know, in law in the United States today, under the aegis of we the people, another meaning of what is a person is a person is one who has standing to sue in court, legal personhood, right? And as we know, in this country, there are only two entities who have this standing as persons, and it is our own species and corporations, right? Um, not the sugar maples, not the salmon, but the corporations. What if it was different? And what I want to do to close our, our discussion together is to inspire you, I hope, with some examples of how this ancient way of thinking of the personhood of all beings is very much a contemporary um, movement which is afoot all around us. Because as you know, yeah, under the guidance and leadership of the Maori people who also have this notion of the personhood of all beings, the sacred Wanganui River has been declared a legal person. It belongs to itself and is cared for under the guardianship of both the Maori and the crown. In this idea, here's the Wanganui River right here, this notion of granting, I shouldn't say granting, recognizing the personhood of all beings is an economic and a political construct and it's also an ethical stance because recognition of personhood for a river, personhood for all beings, opens the door to ecological justice um, because our laws today are all about governing human rights to the land. And what we need is a shift to include the rights of the land, the rights to be whole and healthy, the right to exist. And these models are emerging all over the world. In Ecuador, in their constitution, the rights of nature are present, right? In the Pachamama thinking that says, Mother Nature has a right to exist. 
I don't want to sugarcoat this and say that this is easy to do. Ecuador and other nations with these provisions are struggling, um, but it is within their aspirations and their vision that this should be so. So much so that the government of Bolivia and other allied nations have brought this before the United Nations, right? Um, that there sits before the United Nations the UN Declaration on the Rights of Mother Earth. And I was honored several years ago to be able to go speak to the General Assembly in support of this notion of the rights of Mother Earth. And we look at it and we say, well, that's a long way off. Yeah, it is. And that's what they said when the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was brought before the United Nations. And today, many decades later, it is, of course, in the law. So I want to leave you with the inspiration of the rights of nature movement. This notion that we can take these ideas um, and create a new system of, of law um, with roots in this ancient thinking about the personhood of all beings. To imagine a time where no being is the property of another. And the rights of nature movement, and I urge you to, to educate yourself, learn more ab about this, but the idea is that, this is a quote from the, some of the documents, that nature in all its life forms has the right to exist, to persist, to maintain and regenerate vital cycles. It goes on to talk about our responsibility to restore the ability of the right of land to exist in these particular ways. And it totally challenges this idea that the earth and the systems of the earth and all of these beings are our property. It is very much more embedded in that indigenous lens of what does land mean and, and not through the lens of capital and, and property. And as a biologist, as a, as a writer, I rarely was thinking about law. It's just not something that was really even in, in my, my thinking. I was leaving that to good advocates and activists to do that work. But it's important to remember, if you have that stance as, as well, um, is, is that law is the way that we make our values visible in the world. And when we look at laws which, which are based on extractive economies and, and in a sense, um, taking away rights from both peoples and other beings, we know that that is not consistent with, with our values. We have to remember that it's people that make the laws reflecting our values, and when they no longer reflect our values, we change them. This is a paradigm shift from thinking about a world governed by property law to one governed by natural law. Perpetual growth? I don't think so. They, they have not repealed the laws of thermodynamics on behalf of just one species, right? From, from economies based on this notion of endless expansion to the notion of sufficiency from human exceptionalism to think about the well-being of all, to start thinking about regenerative economies and governance structures which are based on reciprocity, of remembering that in return for everything that we are given, we have to give back in equal measure. And this next slide, which I really should, oops, I did it again, sorry.
There we go. Um, I forget they're there. Um, this, this wonderful quote is from the Indigenous Environmental Network, who is working hard on the rights of nature and Mother Earth mo movement. And what I really value in this quote is this idea that all other rights are derivative of the rights of the Earth to exist, of natural systems. That's the first law. And we have to have that in place in order for life to go forward. And we have to have a legal system that recognizes that. Is it just happening with the Wanganui River? Mm-mm. The Ho-Chunk Nation in Wisconsin amended their constitution to have rights of Mother Nature language, and in so doing, stopped the mining of frac sand in their home territories. The Ponca in Oklahoma used rights of nature language in their constitution because they sit right at the, at the heart of those earthquake storms, swarms, I should say, that are happening in, in Oklahoma because of fracking. And they have used rights of nature language in their own constitution to arrest that development. The municipality don't have to be at the United Nations. The municipality of, of Boulder ha is working on natural, um, natural law rights of Mother Nature within their city boundaries. How about Eugene being next? Um, and from municipalities to the global scale, as you probably know, for, for five years now, oops, there have been <coughs> excuse me, rights of nature tribunals worldwide at the global scale. As we know, because of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, it is possible to press, uh, to bring suit about crimes against humanity. With this new system of rights of nature jurisprudence, it is now possible to bring suit for crimes against nature. If you're interested in these ideas, I urge you to check out the Rights of Nature movement. There are many um, great resources to learn more about it from the local to the global scale. And I want to end by returning to the wisdom of our language. A different phrase here using the inclusive we. We, inclusive, we, all of us, take care of our grandmother, Earth. And as Lindsay was helping me find the right verb in the way to say this, she also reflected on another piece of wisdom, grammatical wisdom built into our language. And I want to share with you just a couple of the phrases that she shared with me, which were so moving. It appears to be grammatically impossible in our language, she wrote to me, to talk about our grandmother earth without including the listener in our. We must use the inclusive we to talk about our grandmother, the earth. And she says, that makes sense. Who could I possibly talk to who didn't also owe life to the same grandmother earth? And so with our language, with our laws, with our values made visible on the land, I want to end with really an invitation to be part of that inclusive 
we, the aspiration that in these highly polarized times that we might speak with the grammar of inclusion, that we all take care of Mother Earth. Honoring the words of one of my great mentors and teachers, the late clan mother at Onondaga Nation, Audrey Shenandoah, who said that we seek justice. We seek justice not only for ourselves, but justice for all creation. Mi'u, miigwech, thank you. Miigwech, thank you so much. You're very kind. Thank you. Thank you. Your enthusiasm and graciousness gives me a lot of courage to know that we can do this. We can go forward. Thank you. And now for questions and comments. Don't be shy, come on up and tell me I'm crazy. <laughs> you won't be the first. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, your inspiration. Mm. I just want to acknowledge that here in Lane County, we do have a Rights of Nature chapter. Uh, yes! And it, it comes under the auspices of uh, Community Rights Lane County. Um, CommunityRightsLaneCounty.org. Please check it out. This is your invitation to join us because we're going to do this work. Oh. Have to. Oh. I'm so glad. Thank you. That's awesome. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you for everything. Um, my name is Heron, and I wanted to share something uh, that I learned recently. You asked, or you mentioned, Eugene probably wasn't always called Eugene. Um, and I recently learned from my teacher, Jerome Viles, who teaches uh, Chinook Wawa at the Lane Community College. Um, he told me that in Kalapuya, the Kalapuya call this place Chanchifen. Chanchifen. Chanchifen, which is specifically the, um, the junction of the Willamette and the McKinsey Rivers. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Chanchifen. My name is Humble Tatankawiya, Rachel Smith. I'm a 2015 graduate here at the U of O. And I want to thank you for coming and speaking to this way of using our language. It's a way that I've looked at the living things around me since I was a kid. And when I think those words of inclusivity, the sense of crazy I get from feedback from the people around me, 
So I just want to say deeply from the bottom of my heart, thanks for making me not crazy for thinking in <laughs> this way. It's not I alone. <laughs> I also really want to thank some of my greatest teachers here on campus and the ones that really helped me get through my education here with that kind of crazy-making language of separation and isolation. The trees on this campus have been my teachers mm -hmm. and my comforters and the ones who've been cheerleaders for me. And as I began, began to open my heart to hearing their voices, uh, they spoke to me about how trees are record keepers for the place, how the energy of all the beings that come past is recording in the, recorded in that living cambium layer. And then as a footnote, they said, is it any coincidence that our libraries are full of books made from trees? <laughs> so thank you again. Awesome, thank you. Thank you. Good words. You know, I'm really glad that you, you called them out in, in that way. Um, because, of course, you know, as, a, as a plant scientist, I am so excited in the ways that um, we are learning more and more about plant communication and the personhood of, of, of plants as we come to learn more and more. Um, not that traditional knowledge needs to be validated by Western science. It, it is validated by the living world and by its own culture. Um, in parallel, um, Western science, which is showing us that the, the personhood of, of plants in their ability to communicate and behave and remember and learn. It's amazing. So thank you. Hi. Hi. Thank you very much for coming and speaking to us. My name is Mark Conley, and I was born in, or, uh, from Oak Grove, Oregon, which is a suburb of Portland. And a long time ago, I remember as a child that an army of graders came in and started eviscerating the land, and it, it disturbed me greatly. And I've spent my whole life trying to study and understand it, and it seems I'm always at the 12th hour. And what has happened in the last two years in Portland is a flash. Uh, it's twice as crowded now. And someone told me that the average number of people coming in is 750 to 800 a week are moving into Portland. And these developments that are happening, such as Capitol Hill PUD here in Eugene, I just went to the planning meeting. I'm deeply concerned with the number of people that come in, the way developers eviscerate the land, and the planning department of any municipality that I've gone to these hearings, they have a narrow tunnel of approval criteria. And if the developer meets that, no matter how strongly people feel about that, no matter how cogent the arguments, that development is approved. And I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts about uh, the population growing without any limits and with this development which does not honor anything at all uh, and what we can do about it. And thank you for raising those important issues and, and certainly this, this idea of uncontrolled growth and uncontrolled development, these, these coupling of, of population and consumption are, are, are you know, the twin um, destroyers in a way, which is why this notion of a paradigm shift to 
economies and communities which are regenerative in nature, which are based on reciprocity, not on continued growth, is, is an important reframing. And when we say it's a reframing, as if it's something new, but it, it's really the way the natural world works. That's the way ecosystems work. So the emerging sciences of biomimicry, of, of shaping our design based on natural processes, I think it's time also for cultural biomimicry, that we, that we think about our, our governance and our economies um, to align them with, with natural law, not with these um, artificial criteria. But again, we have to remember it's human people who make these criteria. Um, and we're human people. Thank you. I loved your book, um, Braiding Sweetgrass, and oh, your daughters figure prominently in it, and your relationship with your daughters and their connection to the land. Um, and I found tonight, when you talked about the um, possibility of a UN Convention on the Rights of Nature, um, we've had a UN Convention on the Rights of Children, um, which has its roots back to the 1950s within the UN community, was ratified, um, or established in the 80s and has been signed by all but one country in the world as of today. I'll give you one guess as to which country has not yet ratified it. But um, I would wonder if you have thoughts again on, um, again, going back to your book as well, of um, our responsibility, because you talk about rights and responsibility in your book as being inseparable. Mm -hmm. And I think we have rights and responsibilities related to nature as well as related to our children. And I find the connection between children and nature uh, inseparable as well. I work with a foundation that has a nature action collaborative for children with a global membership. And uh, I just want to wonder if you could elucidate for us just a few more thoughts on that connection sure. between childhood and or our relationship to children and our relationship to nature. Well, certainly, thank you for that. It's a really important insight, which is really captured in these ideas of, of the principles under which we govern ourselves and make our choices to be grounded in intergenerational equity um, that, that we are talking about. When we th say that we are the ancestors of this place, and what kind of ancestors do we want to be? We are, of course, talking about our children and about our grandchildren. And particularly in this time, what do we want to say that we have done um, on, on their behalf. It's very much, of course, captured in the in seven generations thinking. And you know that, that notion my Haudenosaunee neighbors um, share the teaching that, that there's a lot of misunderstanding about thinking for the seven generations. Um, because for how many of us can think seven generations ahead? Um, that's That's a powerful act of vision and, and imagination. But what they say at Onondaga is that those seven generations really refer to ourselves and to our children and to our grandchildren, to ourselves and our parents and our grandparents, which gives us six generations. And then the seventh generation is, so you say, those ones whose faces are looking up at us from the ground. Um, so it, it is our work to, to think of that, those next generations. Thank you for your comments, yeah. Hi, um, oh, I'm a student here at the university. 
I'm curious, thank you so much for your words of wisdom tonight. I really appreciate um, this new perspective. It's new to me and I am in love with it. Um, I'm curious what your take is on how we should respond publicly to the way that the government views our land and in using our new vocabulary tonight, our kin. I didn't quite hear you, how the government Sorry. is responding how should to... We res how should we respond publicly, specifically in forms of social protest? How do you think that we should take action? I think the best guidance that I can give on that is to remember that in my culture, we are, and it's certainly not unique to my culture, is to say that every one of us is given a gift and that the job of an educated person is to know what their gift is and how to give it in the world. It's not the same gift for all of us and it's not the same action for all of us, but that when we ally what we're going to do with what we value and with what we love and with what our gift is, that's real power. Your gift might be in public advocacy. Your gift might be in resistance. And it might be in, in theater. And it might be in art and raising beautiful children and raising food and raising a ruckus. You know, it might be all of those things. Um, and so whatever it is, do it. <laughs> whatever it is, do it. Um, and particularly, I want to share in this audience because when I look out, I see many folks with hair the color of mine. <laughs> and recently, Bill McKibben was on our campus. And he was, um, of course, talking to our inspiring students who are, uh, they are a source of inspiration for me. And then he looked at all of us with silver hair and said, and you should be the leaders. You should be the leaders. This is the time of life when we are thinking about intergenerational equity in our, in our work, in our time here. And I think of it very much in these phrases of, of given, sitting on the brink of climate chaos, being in the age of the sixth extinction. I want to always be asking myself and challenging others to say, what do you love too much to lose? and carry it through. Hi. Hi. Um, I have a question about what your favorite chapter is from your book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Oh, what a wonderful question. <laughs> It's a really hard question to, to answer. Oh my gosh. Um, it might be the chapter about allegiance to gratitude. Mm -hmm. Because for me, the practice, let me back up and say that when I worry about what it is we're going to do, I think sometimes we can get really caught in thinking that we have to invent something new to do. And as I said at the beginning, maybe our job is to remember to remember. And remembering the power of gratitude is, is really important. Practice of gratitude in the deep gratitude of, of, of loving 
those around you who are caring for you, all those other living beings, makes us remember that um, we are all related, that we have mutual responsibilities for one another, and that the exercise of those responsibilities is not this onerous thing that we have to do when someone's shaking their finger at us. It, it's a joyful thing to do, to be in a grateful relationship with that which sustains life. Uh, so I guess that's my favorite because Gratitude is a powerful act of reciprocity, and it's joyful. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Hi, I'm Jason. Um, I'm also here with some of my friends from Oregon State University and uh, from the Environmental Arts and Humanities Program. We also want to thank you for all the work you've done for creating part of that program, too. Mm, um, my question is, perhaps a little bit philosophical, but you've mentioned many of these giving rights to life and um, the rest of the animated world, and I'm really behind that, and I really want to embrace that. I'm trying to figure out how to extend that further, and maybe I'm just not hearing it right, in the sense of how do we give that animacy to, and you sort of made the separation between life forms and the inanimate world or the uh, the non-living world, and they, they seem to have just as much activity, but how do we give that animacy to the microbes and molecules and the quarks that make up the rest of our world? Um, Are you trying to say that the whole universe is sacred? Well, I'd like to get there. <laughs> and so how do we continue that grammar? How do we continue that... Um, not breaking the animacy down to any particular level of like, this is a life form, so we give it representation, mm -hmm. but the, the, the sand doesn't. Mm -hmm. I don't think you're saying that, but I'm trying no. to figure out how to hear that better. Mm. It's a wonderful question that, that when I propose these new pronouns to my students to, to help me think about this, let's experiment with this. Um, one of the things, they raise the same question. They say, well, where does it end? Um, um, it's a great I question. I don't think it does either. <laughs> but it, in a pragmatic way, yeah. where does it end and where does it start? And one of the, it is indeed. It's a, it's a circle. And what they said is... I don't think I could use ki and kin easily in, the, in this circumstance, they said, but I could easily use it for those organisms, those beings with whom I already have a relationship, mm. and I feel badly speaking of them as it. I said, well, what organisms would those be? And they began talking about, well, I wouldn't want to use it for all trees, but that one in my yard. Um, <laughs> And what about that, that one robin that sings outside my window? They were saying, we can begin this kind of language with those with whom we have relationship and use that grammar as a way of indicating, I'm not talking about all oak trees. I'm talking about that one who is, who, with whom I have a relationship. And I thought that it was a lot of wisdom in that, to say, let's begin with what we love um, and use this new grammar as a, as a mechanism for that. Um, because people might question you if you used it globally, but no one will question that we have a relationship with, with the ones that we love. Thank you. Hi. Um, first of all, I want to give thanks to Mother Earth and Father Son 
and I am grateful for your words and grateful for your um, addressing the use of language. And we currently live in a paradigm where uh, obviously we are speaking using a structure that's based on a sexist, racist, patriarchal system. And um, so I absolutely agree that language and the words that we use is essential to, to change this paradigm. My, my concern, however, is that we have, not only have we completely, at least a mainstream culture in this, this Western world, completely severed our ties, not only have we severed our ties to the land, but we also have severed our ties to one another. So it's no longer we the people, but we the individ individuals. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to suggest maybe a, a stepping stone or another um, way to, to address language and to shift. One example that I wanted to bring up was uh, this, this language called nonviolent communication. And there are classes in Oregon, around the world, and this language is to be used between people to put an end to this uh, punishment reward system that we use. And you know, I'm also concerned about the, the, the way we use lang the academic language as well. There's oftentimes, as you said, there, I mean, there's respect and connection in these things are just not addressed. And so with nonviolent communication, the idea of removing or trying to, to look at connecting between one another, uh, I think that's essential as a first step. Absolutely, it's um, all about relationship. To really yeah. start mm -hmm. there so that we can then uh, be we all beings rather than we the individuals. Mm -hmm. so. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Good words. Hi. <clears throat> I'm not sure. Is this? Yeah, okay. It's working. <laughs> Thank you. I just wanted to hear your take on this grandmother Agnes Baker Pilgrim, who was one of the members of the 13 Indigenous Grandmother Council that went around the world sharing the message of uh, the Indigenous peoples. I interviewed her eight years ago, I think it was eight years ago here, and she told me that for healing to happen in the world, there's a very simple thing that needs to take place. Everybody needs to make an 18-inch journey from here to here. And I'm just wondering if you could speak to that. I could say yes. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you for that, yeah. One of the important um, teachings of Anishinaabe peoples and others who I, that I really value is this notion of the medicine wheel teachings that remind us that as human people we have multiple ways of knowing of mind, body, emotion, and spirit. And Cartesian dualism, the root of scientific thinking, right, that separates matter and spirit that separates mind and, and matter and spirit um, is, um, has a great deal of power when applied to certain kinds of questions, but not to all questions. And that we really need to come back to answering with all of those realms of mind, body, emotion, and spirit meeting in the heart. So, thank you.
First of all, I'm inspired by you, and you make me want to make the world a better place in my own way. And I Thank really you. am enlightened that I'm here to listen to you. But also this inspiration, I hunger for more knowledge in a way, because I want to know how Native peoples sustain themselves for so long, and now we're having all these climatic troubles, and if there is a basically an aggregation, organization, an NGO, people who have this wisdom of the land and former practices of taking care of it in this holistic way. And if possible, I'd like to more know from these people and if they're out there, how would I be able to connect with them? That's a huge question. Um, I'm, I'm very sorry yeah. if you, you can. No, 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 it, it, it is a huge question um, that I really can't um, begin to answer here. It, I just want to say, Katie, are you here? No, was it? Oh, okay, because it wasn't Katie. Somebody was, I'm sorry, I've met so many people. Can't remember who's who. But there is remarkable work being done in the national climate assessment work, some of it being done here at, at U of O for incorporation of traditional knowledge and indigenous ways of knowing into climate change adaptation thinking. Um, but this, there are so many um, important elements to knowledge sharing where the, the, the knowledge which has been safeguarded and, gener and, and generated by Native peoples also needs to be protected from our need for that knowledge. Um, and so there's, there's just much wisdom there and much caution in, in the ways in which we access that knowledge. Um, but many scholars who are doing this good work and doing it in a really good way. I'm sorry that wasn't a very coherent answer, but there's so many facets to your really important question. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you. Keep asking it. Yeah. Actually, there, there is an organization that I was recently in touch with called Wisdom of the Elders mm -hmm. in Portland who are documenting some of the indigenous knowledge about caring for plants. So that just I thought of that as, yeah. as preparing my question. Um, thank you so much for being here. Your work has been really inspiring to me personally and also to many of the women that I work with. I live uh, just north of Portland um, on Savi Island, which is Wapato Island. That was um, land of the um, Chinook uh, Native Americans there. And um, we are building a women-centered community there, working on building right relationship with the land, um, very much um, inspired by your teachings. And one of the things that you mention in your book, Braiding Sweetgrass, is that um, people who do not have indigenous heritage um, need to make their own rituals and ceremonies, that borrowing directly from indigenous practices is um, not necessarily appropriate. But I'm wondering if there's, if you have specific suggestions of how, as people who don't necessarily have, know much about our ancestry or have an ancestry that we're aware of that honors these practices directly, how do we come in contact with it? I think that you're absolutely right that we have a great longing for that kind of connection which is manifest in the collective energy of ceremony and ritual. And when we're hungry for it, when it moves us, it will come to us. It, it has to be an authentic 
relationship with place. There's nothing more powerful than that authentic song that arises, the gift that arises from a, a group um, deeply committed to that reciprocity, because ceremony is a form of reciprocity. And for ceremony to be real in the world, it, it has to come from your relationship with the earth that you're standing on. So thank you for honoring that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. And one last one. Um, <clears throat> I'm a massage therapist from Portland, and I tell all my clients about your book. Um, and I, I do have a question, but um, one of my most profound moments in Oregon was when I moved out here from Alabama, and I stepped foot on an old-growth forest floor, and it changed my whole life. Um, and it literally is as easy as taking that first step and feeling the depth of tissue almost in the floor and suddenly you look around and there's no distinction between life and death and death makes life and it was astounding. Um, so thank you, thank you. And my question is, do you think we should rename this country? <laughs> I mean, while we're at it, you know, we can change pronouns and all of that, but... Now, this is really embarrassing because when you said, do a we, do a I think we should, you stepped away from the microphone and I couldn't hear what you said, but oh. apparently it was great. <laughs> do you think we should... Rename this country. Oh. And I want to honor so much what you just shared of where does our authentic relationship come from through the soles of our feet, what you just experienced. Um, you know, the great teacher is all around us and the healing that so many of your questions have spoken of comes from that relationship, from that connection, from that deep paying attention and that knowing that as we love the land, that the land loves us back too. So, miigwech. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much.